so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Okay. You ready? Sure. <laughs> we'll just run with it. <laughs> Good thing is Marky Mark can edit. Yes. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, filling in for what we think is an under-the-weather Brent Leatherwood, but we're not sure if maybe he had a migraine. We just hope you feel better soon, Brent, is our friend and colleague, Hannah Daniel. Welcome. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Hope Brent is feeling better soon, though. I know, we do too. And again, we don't know if he's sick, but sickness is going around everywhere. My kids had RSV over the break. I feel like everybody's been getting the flu, Mm -hmm. the stomach bug, and I don't want to go back to wearing masks because that was just no good, but Mm-mm. at least we didn't get sick. So <laughs> I don't know. It's just no fun, especially during the holidays because you have so much going on. Right. Ain't nobody got time to be sick. Uh-uh. So here we are in December. I cannot believe it. The countdown to Christmas is officially on, which is so just crazy. wild. Yes, wild. And your world, I think, kind of slows down a little bit in December or No. No, I, we are just trying to to make it to the new year, Um, (laughs) but you know, Congress is back in session with a lot of things they're trying to get done before the end of the year. So they have to fund the government to avoid a government shutdown in a couple of weeks. And they have been passing stuff left and right. And so it is a crazy, crazy time in DC, but I'm hoping that we still will be wrapped up in time for Christmas to have some good time to rest and not be in the middle of of all the crazy. Oh, my word. Well, that was wishful thinking on my part. For some reason, <laughs> I thought maybe it got slow, but obviously not. We're going to talk about some January, of that. January, maybe. Yes, January, maybe. We can hope. Yes, 2023. We'll talk about some of that in the culture section. For now, we're going to talk about what the ERLC has been featuring this week. And there are two pieces I want to mention. Uh, this past week was Giving Tuesday, and we as an organization highlighted the work that we do with the Psalm 139 Project, which is providing life-saving ultrasounds to pregnancy resources centers because statistics have shown that if a mom sees and hears her baby's heartbeat, she is more likely to choose life. So this really is a truly life-saving piece of equipment, Uh, but it's expensive. And so uh, pregnancy resource centers need the money to be able to purchase these and they need the training. So it's our privilege to be able to do that. So these two pieces focus on uh, the pro-life arena. The first is by Laura Campbell, and it's titled Three Things to Know About Pregnancy Resource Centers. And she dispels some of the myths that people might have in their mind regarding uh, these organizations. And she says they are pro-woman. So often the the line is that you just care about the baby and not the woman, but that is not true. They are pro-family. So they want to come around and support 
the mother, the father, or um, other people involved in this pregnancy and provide holistic care. And then they are truly pro-life. And she says, but being pro-life means so much more than being anti-abortion, although it's no less than that. But it's equipping vulnerable mothers with what they need to be able to choose life for their children, whether that's them raising their children or making an adoption plan for their child, whatever that may be. So these pregnancy resource center workers, volunteers, staff are on the front lines, as we often say in the pro-life movement. We are incredibly grateful for the work that they do, and we are so honored and privileged to be able to partner with them through the Psalm 139 project. We've heard some incredible stories, and we look forward to all the lives that the Lord will save through the use of these ultrasound machines and the work of these pregnancy resource centers. The second article is about adoption, and it's written by our friend and former colleague who you worked really closely with, Hannah Chelsea Sobolik. She now works at Lifeline Children's Services. And, you know, we're in December, but this actually ran in November. November is National Adoption Month. So Chelsea wanted to address some misconceptions surrounding adoption. And she talked about five of those. And what they are is adoption and foster care are similar. So that's not the case. A woman will not have any control in making an adoption plan. She dispels that. Adoption is an easy alternative to abortion. And she talks about the fact that it's not easy. It's a very difficult choice. Another myth is more families are needed for adoption. And then the final one is it's a failed adoption if a mother chooses to parent. And then she goes on to just discuss how language matters. So we've got to be careful uh, in how we talk about adoption and children involved and the mothers and fathers involved. And I, now that I'm in this space, I know these different um, nuances of language, but I think many believers don't. And so they'll say some things that kind of grate on people in the adoption world, more familiar with the adoption world. And I don't think that Christians will say those things because they mean to be harsh. It's just they just don't know what they don't know. So I'm thankful for people like Chelsea educating us so that we can use language that dignifies people who are involved in adoption and foster care. So we are so thankful for Chelsea's work. We're thankful for her also being on the front lines of the pro-life movement. And we look forward to seeing how the Lord will use her to better the lives of vulnerable families around our nation. Absolutely. And I think both of these pieces are really getting at something that I think we often are are very narrow-minded when we are thinking about creating a pro-life culture and we can really focus in on just being anti-abortion or just focusing in on how we can legally restrict abortion, which certainly that is important work, and we, we shouldn't avoid doing that. But I think both of these pieces get at that it is a complicated and a, a nuanced and a multi-layered issue, and we have to be able to wrap around women and serve them and serve their families, both women who choose to parent, those that choose adoption, and for us as the church, it's important for us to be well-informed on all of those areas and allow us to be able to better serve these people who are made in the image of God and who are either bravely are choosing life or maybe who are recovering from the shame and trauma of having chosen an abortion or are making the difficult choice to choose adoption. In each of those cases, we have to be able to show up with love and care and support and the grace of Christ and be able to offer 
hope and peace to really difficult circumstances. And I think these pieces are really helpful in helping us think through those different circumstances. So as listeners, those of your neighbors or family members, church members who are in your lives uh, that you know have a, a heart for these issues or want to know more about them, we would encourage you to read these articles and to be prepared to love the people that God has surrounded you with well and to point them to the hope that we have in Christ and to show them the love that our Father has shown us in Him. And now it's time for our culture section where we talk about the things going on in the world. Hannah, what do you have for us today? Yeah, so first on my list for what's been going on this week has been the Senate voting to pass the very— misnamed Respect for Marriage Act, which we've talked about on the podcast before. But basically, this is a bill that codifies the right to same-sex marriage that was found in the 2015 Obergefell decision. This really came as a result of the Dobbs decision and the fear that potentially the Supreme Court could look to overrule other previously held rights. And so it actually passed the House earlier in July and then went over to the Senate where it stalled for several months. It was unclear if there would be enough Republican support to overcome the legislative filibuster, which means that it has to have 60 votes to support it. So it would require 50 Democrats and at least 10 Republicans. And um, the vote was delayed until actually this week. And eventually 12 Republicans did end up supporting the bill. In between that time, there actually was an amendment to the bill by a bipartisan group of senators and the amendment was actually trying to address several of the issues that we had, we alongside other groups, had raised about the bill. Um, we ultimately opposed the bill because we believe that marriage is a institution designed by God between one man and one woman for life. But addition, in addition to that, there are a number of religious liberty issues. Also, the original version of the bill opened the door to federal recognition of polygamy, just lots of issues. And so this bipartisan amendment ended up fixing the polygamy issue, and it it kind of gave a nod to trying to fix some of these religious liberty issues, but we did not believe that it was sufficient enough in really addressing those problems, and a number of other faith groups felt similarly. And so we have continued to oppose the bill. We have sent letters and one-pagers and explainers and everything else to Congress trying to help them understand the real implications of this bill and the issues that will arise from it. And we were really disappointed to see um, not only the bill pass this week, but also the Senate had the opportunity to vote on three amendments to the bill proposed by Senators Lee, Lankford, and Rubio. And each of those amendments would have actually worked to address some of these religious liberty concerns. So it was really disappointing to see those amendments fail and then the bill ultimately pass. So from here, it'll head back over to the House of Representatives. They have to vote on it again because it was amended. And then from there, it will go to the president to be signed into law. So at this point, it's it's pretty unlikely that it is derailed. It's very likely to become law which is disappointing to see. But I really like what Brent had to say about this because I think he gives us the right perspective on what is a disappointing result. He says, Government cannot change what it did not create. Marriage was created by God for our flourishing. He gave it a specific design as a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. No law or action will alter that. Nevertheless, new challenges for people of faith or religious institutions may arise once this bill becomes law. While we need to be clear-eyed about those, the task remains the same for Christ followers. 
continue living out and embodying a Christian vision on this for a culture that is awash in confusion about marriage. Doing this will accomplish far more in the defense of marriage and the picture of the gospel it presents than any law ever could. I do love that quote by Brent, and especially when you read the rest of the article and compare the quotes, not that we're playing the comparison game, but the tenor of the quote compared to other people and faith leaders who are speaking. It's just, it's not one of fear and of hand-wringing and of throwing up our hands in frustration, but it's a call to remember what we believe, be committed to it, continue to speak it, and also live it. I have several questions for you. Mm -hmm. So is it true that the House is Republican-controlled, controlled by the Republicans? It will be, but is not currently. It's not currently. So that's why it will be in January. Yes. Because Once of the Once the election. new Congress is okay. sworn in, there will be a narrow Republican majority. But for right now, there's a narrow Democratic majority. And that's why the Respect for Marriage Act passed the House. Yes, but also the first time the bill was voted on, 47 House Republicans actually voted in support of it. And so this bill has had some pretty significant bipartisan support. So I, I think it's fair to assume that the bill would likely pass regardless of who was in control. So is that support, Republican support in the House, was that expected or surprising? Because you said 47 members? Yes, 47 members in the House and then 12 in the Senate. I think to some extent it was a bit surprising. This is an issue that members of Congress have really not had to think about or talk about or act on since the Obergefell decision in 2015. So for a lot of members, you know, cultural attitudes on this issue have shifted pretty dramatically since then. Our culture has really quickly shifted from this being a, a very divisive issue to one that is largely pretty accepted outside of religious circles. And so I think the calculus for a lot of Republican members has significantly shifted. And so this, in some ways, was, it could be expected, you know, looking at culture, but also was still a bit of a shock comparing how members had maybe talked about this pre-Obergefell to now. I think I saw a poll the other day, someone shared in our work Slack, that 72% of people support same-sex marriage as compared to back in, what, 20. 15 or something. I can't mm -hmm. remember how far back it went. It's a significant increase. So that makes sense. And I cannot believe Obergefell was in 2015. It feels like it, feels like it wasn't that long ago, mm -hmm. but I guess it was. My other question is, so when this, as we expect, it will probably pass and go to President Biden's desk to be signed and will go into law. So what are the next steps after that? Can you amend a law as far as the religious liberty issues after it's passed or? It would require a new law and new action from Congress to do that. So that would be pretty difficult for Congress to have the support to, in a sense, repeal this law and replace it with something different or that's amended. So that would be pretty unlikely, especially given just the very narrow margins that both the houses of Congress are consistently seeing at this point. So in this past Congress, we've had a 50-50 Senate and a very narrowly controlled Democratic majority in the House. And going into the new Congress, we don't know the results of the Georgia runoff yet, but it's looking like it'll either be a 50-50 Senate again or a 51-49 Democratic majority in a very narrow House majority. So we are seeing just smaller and smaller majorities in Congress generally. And I think that is going to make any kind of changes that require significant level of support really difficult. 
So how do you address the religious liberty concerns of the bill? Is there a way to do that or we just see how it plays out? Yeah, I think it really will remain to be seen exactly how this plays out. I think it it largely will play out in the courts, which is what we've seen since Obergefell. We've seen religious liberty challenges that make their way ultimately up to the Supreme Court. And in decisions since then, the court has been really favorable to religious liberty. And we have very strong protections for people of faith. And I don't think there's any reason to think that that is going to change. We can we can feel very confident about the precedents that the court has set in terms of religious liberty. But still, that doesn't mitigate the cost and the time that goes into litigation for people of faith that have to go through the courts to be able to um, recognize their beliefs in the public square. And so that's really where our concern around this lies. And we'll be watching how this plays out in the courts and looking for opportunities to engage. And actually, on that note, um, next week on Monday, the Supreme Court will be hearing oral arguments in a case called 303 Creative versus Alenis. And this is a case very similar to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from a few years ago, arising out of Colorado and a woman who owns the 303 Creative business designs wedding websites. And she has said that she does not want to design websites for same-sex marriages. And this is in violation of Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act. And so this has made its way up to the Supreme Court after, I believe, six years of litigation, which to our point earlier kind of shows normally these things are resolved in favor of religious liberty, but it takes a an incredibly long time and a lot of money and effort to be able to do that. And so the court's going to hear these arguments, and basically they'll be looking at an issue really centered on compelled speech. Can the government compel someone to say something that they that they disagree with? And so that is kind of what the court will be trying to decide in this case. So it'll be really interesting to see how those oral arguments play out. I'll be out at the court um, when those are happening, and then I think we can expect a decision from this probably late in the term, probably May or June of next year. Well, and since next week, actually, I'll be out and you will be out with Brent and another staff member at the border. And mm-hmm. so we have already recorded, just for Heads Up listeners, a special interview with our former colleague, Dan Darling, who's now at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So we wanted to go ahead and talk about these oral arguments that were happening next week. And we will have an explainer, an updated explainer on our site, in addition to some other religious liberty resources. So our colleague, Alex Ward, has put together a piece Uh, It's kind of like a one-pager on religious liberty, just talks about religious liberty as a Baptist distinctive, breaks that down, and then talks about um, one of the articles of the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 17, I believe, that talks about religious liberty. And he just explains how that applies to our current day and age. So I think it will be incredibly helpful as religious liberty is our focus for next week. And I also just realized I said religious liberty a bunch of times (laughs) within that little monologue right there. So, But it is very important, and it is a Baptist distinctive. (laughs) So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your trip to the border next week? Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this. Brent and I will be going to the border with some of our partners at World Relief and partners at the Land Center at Southwestern. So it's fitting that you guys are are talking today and next week. But we will be there with a group of other Southern Baptists, really just for a learning experience. We will be 
going around and listening to individuals that are impacted by what's going on at the border in different ways. So we will hear from individuals who run shelters for migrants, both on the Mexico and U.S. side. Um, We will have a conversation with Custom and Border Patrol officers. We will hear from government officials. I think it'll be a really helpful experience for us to get a holistic picture of what's happening at the border. It's easy to hear talking points from the news or just to hear one side of the story. And I think all of these people have a different seat to look at what's going on. And I think it takes hearing from all of these different perspectives to get a really accurate picture of what's happening and how we can better look to address it. And so immigration is an issue that Um, Southern Baptists have cared about for a long time. There's several SBC resolutions on the issue. And consistently, we are saying that we want both our border to be secure, but also we want to be a welcoming place for people who are experiencing persecution. And so um, I think this trip to the border will be really insightful for how we can better do that and how we can more fully understand what's going on. Well, and though it is a nuanced issue, the Bible speaks over and over again to God's people about how they treat the foreigner, Mm -hmm. as God's Word says. And it is to be with dignity and with compassion and with welcoming open arms, though we do want safe and legal means to be able to enter the Mm -hmm. United States. Still, our heart posture should be one of compassion and care. Right. And I think so often the border is an issue that can feel very far away for us. It can feel not something that is relevant or something that really is impacting our daily lives. But the reality is, is that we have immigrants around us every day, and many of them are impacted by what's going on there. And as you were saying, the Bible, I think Christians can come to good faith disagreements about what exactly our immigration policy should be. But the Bible really does not leave any room around us having a posture of care, and we should care about what's going on, and we should care about how the current dynamics are impacting people. And um, we know that these people matter dearly to God, and we want to do our best to find solutions to the current challenges that can do just what you were saying, both keep our country safe, but also help those who are in need. Well, we look forward to hearing about y'all's trip and to seeing pictures and finding out how the Lord uses it to change you, really. And mm-hmm. um, because when you confront something like that in person, you can't help but be be changed, especially when you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And then finally, I wanted to, I always like to end with something fun. So I wanted to end with the World Cup, which comes every four years, correct? Yes. Isn't that true? Okay. And I'm not really a huge soccer fan, but when it's the World Cup in the U.S. is in right. it, of course. And as you said, with the last the last win over Iran, go democracy. <laughs> the United States won. Yes. Although I hear that the guy that made the um, goal— Christian Pulisic. Okay, is that his name? Yes. Are you a big soccer fan? Yes. Okay. He has like a contusion or something, my mom mm-hmm. was saying. I'm like, otherwise known as a bruise. A bruise. That's the thing I don't like about soccer <laughs> is you see these guys writhing around yes. constantly the on the field. The soccer flop is— Ridiculous. And I'm like, okay, if you're being hit, tackled by a 300-pound man like in football, Mm -hmm. that's one thing. But you're being kicked 
But you also don't have any pads on. You don't have any pads. It's true. The guys don't weigh as much, although you are running at top speeds. Yeah. But it's a bruise. Just take some medicine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not spoken as someone so. who's not a soccer player. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm I'm also, every time I watch soccer, impressed by how much they've run. I know. I would like to know how much they eat. A lot. To I'm be sure. able to keep up with how much they run. And I'm glad they get a lot of downtime in between games. Mm -hmm. So the next, are you up on the next game and who that's against? Yeah, yeah. The next game is going to be Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern time against the Netherlands. So this is our first game in the knockout stage. So this is the first time in a long time that we will be advancing to the knockout stage. It's a very big game against the Netherlands. If we win that, we'll get to continue advancing. But if we lose, we will go home. So uh, it's a very exciting time. I love watching soccer, and it's just the best. It's the world sport. I love watching just the emotion on everybody's face when, when the United States won. They were just, you know, so overcome with emotion, and you could tell they had played so hard to reach that result. So it's and they're it's a young. Good, they're a young team, aren't they? Yes, really we're. Team. I think. I think I heard that we are maybe the fourth youngest team in the tournament. So it it really is a a new generation of. U.S. soccer players since the last time we were in the World Cup. We didn't qualify four years ago. And so it's been eight years since we were last at the tournament, and it's a, a whole new generation of players. Yeah, it's always fun to ha put on your country pride hat when you are playing in a mm -hmm. world game. You know, soccer, though, is the, really the only game that you can not watch all, what is it, 90 minutes of mm -hmm. it or something, come back for the last minute. And there's still zero score, and then there might be a score <laughs> in the end. My, yes. I think my mom was saying, oh, I, I got to leave it this time so I can watch the game or something. I'm like, mom, you're not going to miss anything, even if you miss the first 45 minutes, because nothing happens. It's kind of <laughs> how I feel about basketball. The first half is mm -hmm. kind of pointless, because you come, about, you come for the second half, and everything changes. Right. So, yeah, you don't miss much. But I hope there are some scores. Yes. That being the United States and not the <laughs> Netherlands. So go democracy. Go democracy. We love it. Go red, <laughs> white, and blue. Hannah, I'm so glad that you joined us once again. It's always fun when you're able to join us and enlighten us with all your mm -hmm. wisdom when it comes to life in D.C. What's your favorite thing about Christmas in D.C.? Oh, that's a good question. I love Christmas in D.C. and seeing there's so many Christmas trees that go up. The Capitol has one. I actually went and saw it last night. Uh, the White House has a Christmas tree, and they actually have smaller Christmas trees for every single state has a tree. A lot of the old hotels have pretty Christmas trees. I'm really excited. On Saturday, I am going to see the decorations at the White House for the first time. I've never gotten to do that before, and I'm really, really excited to see that. And then on Sunday, I'm going to see Handel's Messiah at the National Cathedral. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, a longstanding D.C. tradition, and I'm really excited to get to go see it. That's amazing. Do you know what the theme is for the decorations at the White House? I believe the theme is We the People. Okay. And it is kind of taking a look at all the different kinds of people in the United States and how all of us coming together is what makes us great, I think. Okay, well, you'll have to post pictures <laughs> so, that, yeah, so that we can see. Well, you have fun jet-setting and looking at all the <laughs> Christmas things in D.C., and we will look forward to the next time that we get to host you here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Mark Owens.
Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.